Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news, as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO of Vandenack Weaver, LLC. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trust and estates, business succession and exit planning, law practice technology, management and leadership, and upon occasion, well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory Housing and Business Centers, and Carson Private Client. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, Sherry Durier has graciously agreed to act as the interviewer of me as we talk about a recent case from the Ace Circuit, Connolly versus the United States, and how it has affected considerations regarding buy-sell agreements for closely held businesses. Thanks for helping me out today, Sherry. Of course. Glad to jump in. So, Mary, you have already published and presented on the Connolly case with Jonathan Blotmacher and Martin Shankman for Limeberg Services. With this episode, we will post links to those articles and their presentations. As I understand it, though, your goal today is to provide just a brief summary of key points. I did think that I'd presented with Jonathan and Marty and published and written But we hadn't talked about this particular topic Mm -hmm. on our podcast. And so I was like, we need to discuss the Connolly case on the podcast, but we will provide those supplemental materials. And I'm speaking on that again this fall. So we will 
join that and, and keep the conversation going. It's a fairly important case. I'm just going to start with the facts. We had two brothers. They were Michael and Thomas Connolly. And they owned a company called Crown C. Michael owned 77.18%, and Thomas owned the remainder. The two brothers entered into a fairly typical stock purchase agreement. And that agreement said, well, if one of us dies, the other can buy us out. If, if the surviving brother says, hey, I don't want to buy out my deceased brother, the corporation has a mandatory obligation to buy out. The corporation purchased life insurance on each of the brothers. That insurance was owned by the corporation. One of policy insured each of the brothers. The purpose of the insurance, and it's a fairly typical strategy in buy-sell agreements, is to provide a source of funding to cover the event of one of the brothers dying. So a lot of times a closely held business doesn't have a huge amount of cash available to buy out somebody who passes away, so life insurance is a common strategy used to fund buyouts. So anyway, Michael ended up dying in 2013. The company received the life insurance proceeds, and the proceeds were $3.5 million, but redeemed Michael's shares for $3 million. The ultimate redemption price was an agreement between Thomas, the surviving brother, and Michael's son. The agreement had actually provided that the brothers would use what's called a certificate of agreed value, or they would get appraisals. But after they entered into the agreement, they never did a certificate of agreed value, and they never obtained any appraisals. So when Michael died and the proceeds came in, the estate reported the fair market value of Michael's shares as the $3 million that he was paid pursuant to the agreement between Thomas and Michael's son. The IRS said, no, this should be disregarded, and the life insurance proceeds must be included in the value of the company. The district court granted summary judgment to the Internal Revenue Service. There is a case out of the 11th Circuit called the State of Blount that had ruled differently, and the district court declined to follow that, as did the 8th Circuit. What happened at the 8th Circuit was that the court looked at the stock purchase agreements and noted that it's really common for closely held companies, such as in this case, to try and enter into agreements to limit the ownership of companies to a small group of people. And so those agreements, and this was a typical example of them, are covered by Section 2703A and B of the Internal Revenue Code as to whether such restrictions shall be respected for purposes of federal estate taxes. So it's one thing, say Sherry and I, that we start a business together and we enter into an agreement and say, no matter what the value of this is, I'm going to pay you $10. Contractually, that might hold. But the IRS might say, sorry, Sherry, that business when you died was actually worth $20 million, and we're going to include that $20 million in your estate. So you're getting 10 bucks from me and $20 million is getting included in your estate, assuming that's all subject to estate taxes, you're going to pay tax on that. So 
while it's acceptable and appropriate to enter into an agreement as you see fit, you want to consider that the IRS can come in and say, despite that you're only getting this amount, we're going to value it for estate tax purposes differently. And that's pretty much what happened in this case. And it used these sections, 2703A and 2703B, to come to that conclusion. It considered 2703 in conjunction with some other provisions to come to its conclusion. So can you explain how this affected the federal tax return in this case? So yes, so this is the example that I was talking about where the parties had entered into an agreement about what Michael's estate was going to be paid, which was $3 million. And the court came in and said, mm, no, we disagree with your valuation of the company. You have to include the life insurance proceeds. So just, you know, I'll give a simple example of that. And that is, let's say the business was worth $6 million and the insurance is $3 million. The court said, once we add that insurance, this company is worth $9 million. So the estate tried to argue that, well, we have a redemption obligation, so we have to pay out Michael's estate, and that offsets the insurance proceeds, so it's still only worth $6 million. The court said, nope, we're making a distinction between a liability and an agreement to redeem shares. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. At Foster Group, we know there are more important things than money. There's the joy of providing a lovely home for your family, the excitement of an early retirement, the relief knowing that an unexpected emergency won't ruin your finances. At Foster Group, we're invested in the things that make life, life, and how to get there. Foster Group, your financial life, truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. So is the Connolly case right? So it's been an interesting conversation with that question. There are a lot of practitioners who have disagreed, but ultimately, I do think that the court is right with their conclusion. And I'm going to go back to my example of a business that's worth $6 million. So if I have a business that is worth $6 million and I have an obligation to pay out $3 million, but then I add, and I'm just going to skip that obligation for a minute, but let's say I have $6 million and $3 million of insurance proceeds comes in. I now have a business worth $9 million. And some commentators are arguing that, but I'm just trying to keep this simple. So I now have $9 million. If I only have to pay out $3 million to the estate, I still have a business worth $6 million. And that's what the court is saying, is that in reality, if you were paying out half the value of the business, you would be paying $4.5 million rather than the $3 million. Mm -hmm. And this is the consideration that practitioners really need to be aware of when they're using agreed values and funding agreements with life insurance. Sure. So is there any difference based on the type of agreement? And there is. So there's 
two basic types of agreements that get used in these type of buy-sell arrangements for closely held companies. So one is a cross-purchase. And the way the cross-purchase works is I'll use you and I again as an example, Sherry, and we enter into a business together. And what we decide is we're going to go out and get insurance. So what would happen is, say, I'm going to buy an insurance policy on you, and you're going to buy an insurance policy on me. And so those policies are going to be $3 million each. And then if you pass away, I'm going to buy your shares from your estate for $3 million. In that cross-purchase arrangement, that $3 million never comes into the company. So that's the big difference between the Connolly case where there was a redemption and the insurance was owned by the company and the cross-purchase where the owners own the insurance. So there's when the, with the redemption, let's just say there's no life insurance. I'm just going to run through a few examples of the cross-purchase versus the entity purchase. So let's stay with this business worth $6 million. And let's say what we do is say, you and I enter into an agreement, if one of us dies, we're going to pay the survivor half the value as opposed to a certain dollar amount. Mm-hmm. So if you pass away and that company's worth $6 million, I'm paying your estate $3 million, and the value of the business I have at that moment is $3 million. Right. Now, the arguments that come into that are, well, without Sherry, it's probably not worth $3 million. And that's a valid argument, but again, I'm just trying to keep it simple for mm-hmm. the purposes of number. Now let's say that we have that same business, we have the same agreement, but we have the company buy $3 million of life insurance on each of us. You pass away. Now the company was worth $6 million before you passed away. We brought in $3 million of life insurance. If I only pay your estate $3 million, I have a company worth $6 million. Mm -hmm. If I pay your estate half the value of the company, after your estate has $4.5 million, which is going to match up under the Connolly case with what the IRS says that your, that your interest is worth, and I'm going to have a business worth $4.5 million. So essentially in that case, and one of the things I like to point out, is that this shares the economics. We both get some benefit from having insured this redemption agreement. Some practitioners say, oh, no, we definitely don't want that to happen. And my thought is, well, we need to discuss that and make sure we understand the economics. So we'll talk about the cross-purchase, just restate that. Again, you and I have each bought a policy, and it's $3 million bucks. company worth $6 million. I pay off your estate. I still have a company worth $6 million. You just get the three. And your estate's getting no benefit from that insurance. Right. Again, there's a lot of practitioners who say, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. And I'm like, well, you can say that, but I want to know from the client, is that what you mm-hmm. are reali- Are you really realizing that that is what is going to occur? Mm-hmm. So what are the go-forward considerations here? So again, some practitioners are saying only use cross-purchase agreements. And there are certainly benefits to cross-purchase agreements. One of the points I make is, and I'll go back to our example of where I insured, got $3 million, I now have a $6 million company. At some point, 
that's going to be includable in my estate. So one of the big objections is, oh, that life insurance, the value of that life insurance is increasing the value of this business for estate tax purposes. At the end of the day, if $3 million comes into somebody's estate, it's increased somebody's estate by $3 million. If it's in the survivor's hands, obviously you have time to plan and spend, or maybe you have time to grow it into a lot more costs. So again, it's simply discussing the economics of the different structures with clients and making a conscious decision about how that works. So as I understand it, purchase agreements can be somewhat challenging when there are multiple owners. Are there other options? So consider if you and I had started this business, and we're doing well, and so we want to bring in some other owners, and we bring in six of our friends. And now we're all buying insurance policies on each of the people that we brought into our company. So that's a lot of insurance policies and a lot of complication. So one of the other options is what's called an insurance LLC. And this can be used to have an LLC. The LLC purchases the purchase the insurance. This structure is also beneficial in that it provides some asset protection from personal and company creditors. And when you have a purchase from the deceased shareholders, the purchasing shareholders obtain a tax basis equal to the purchase price, which also happened when I purchased shares from you. So mm-hmm. if I redeem shares, you know, that redemption structure, the redemption is paid, there's no income tax benefit from that, and there's no change to the basis of the shares when we do a cross-purchase, there's definitely a basis factor. So again, when I talk about the economics, and without doing all of that math, I would just say, got to look at the full math on each of the structures when you're advising clients or when you're considering an agreement. Are there other issues that should be considered regarding the agreement? Consider getting creative about the options that are available. So one approach that I've used is what I call a combination agreement. So we might go out and do a cross-purchase agreement and have the cross-purchase apply up to the extent that there is life insurance involved, but then provide for an entity redemption beyond that. That approach would give you potentially the best of the both worlds. It, again, depends on the economics, and I've had some companies that outgrew that structure rather quickly. So it's an it depends, but that's the other consideration. The agreement that works on day one of your business is unlikely to work even two to three years later. So it's something that should really be part of an annual review process. I think it's all too common that we put a buy-sell agreement in place and we get super busy with our business because that's what business people do. They want to run their business, not talk to me about buy-sell agreements. But the fact is it really matters if somebody dies or becomes incapacitated or just leaves the business to start a competitor, which are other things that get covered in these agreements. So reviewing those regularly is really important. Any last thoughts? And that's just that this case, so I mentioned the importance of that review. This particular case is a really good time to use that to say, you know, let's sit down and look because if you have one of these agreements that uses a certificate of agreed value, that might not work currently. There are some things you can do if you have that structure in place that will support that. The formula should be reviewed. So this, both of the recent court cases on this issue did talk a lot about formula. 
So you can review the formula, make sure that you have some kind of backup in these agreements so that you don't have this disparity between what's reported on a federal estate tax return and what you're getting paid. Well, Sherry, thanks today for interviewing me. And as we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory, and Carson Private Client. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.